Hi everyone, welcome back to the Two Degrees C Climate Chat. Joining me today, co-founder of Two Degrees C, Jenny Disson, and our guests today, Katie Kearns and Dr. Ed Kearns, joining us to talk about the intersection of data, technology, investment, and environmental justice in environmental solutions. So join us as we explore in the Two Degrees C Climate Chat. Okay, Jenny, before we bring Dr. Kearns in, I'd like to maybe have you frame the discussion about how climate observation data affects the, um, the decision-making process, the data-to-decision to process. Sure. Thanks, Neil. It's a good start to the dialogue. Um, so we've talked before about how scientists study our entire Earth, planet, space, ocean, atmosphere, um, and the different spheres of the Earth are studied by putting instruments and observing networks to understand data at different locations. Um, these data that are collected can be collected from different sources. It could be satellites, buoys, stations, balloons. Those interested could further look into NOAA and also look at their data center, the National Centers for Environmental Information. So scientists all over the world monitor the earth and they study the ocean, land, and atmosphere and the sun and these, the monitoring of the variables that define our earth are collected. The data is collected from these spheres and um, analyzed. They're assessed for historical understanding and for future projections and predictions. Um, when the data is assessed and analyzed, it is um, used as input into either equations or algorithms or issues and topics that planners, decision makers across all sectors of the economy are challenged with. So when you think about the data fitting into the context of the decision, it is really about what is the question that is being asked? What is the risk that is being faced? What is being planned for? Is it a bridge? Is it energy? Is it renewable energy? Are we talking about ecosystem? Um, is it uh, development of infrastructure? Is it uh, insurance products, reinsurance, catastrophe models? Depending on um, you know, the issue, the challenge, the opportunity, the product or the service or the program, uh, those, all those different aspects have a decision context to them. And I think environmental information arguably underpins most, if not all aspects of the different sectors of um, our economy. All of these sectors intersect with our earth system one way or another. They affect the resources, they affect our spheres, which in turn affects human health. So you can start to note how environmental data is the beginning or the underpinning component of, if you ask me, all aspects of our life on planet earth. Our guests today are Katie Kearns and Dr. Ed Kearns. So welcome to both of you. Katie, um, you just graduated as, um, in applied mathematics and creative technologies. And Dr. Kearns, you are the chief data officer for the First Street Foundation. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. So Thank let's you start having. here. You're welcome. Um, let's have both of you introduce yourselves um, and you know, just explain to the listeners uh, you, you know, your, your backgrounds and your bios. Who would like to go first? 
I can go first. So hi, yeah, I'm Katie Kearns. Uh, I am a very recent graduate from Barry College. And uh, like Neil said, I um, graduated with a degree in mathematics and creative technologies. Um, so kind of my interest in kind of where I'm going, I'm um, interested in a lot of um, hardware technologies and problem solving. Um, that's kind of uh, my creative technologies is a very unique degree. Um, it gives me, it gave me an education in kind of a combination of um, engineering, industrial design, um, human-centered design, and computer science. So um, I'm very involved in, or I took a, um, an interest in hardware technology specifically. So that's kind of where I'm headed. That's, that's great. And this is a kind of a unique experience because uh, this is a father-daughter interview. And uh, Ed, you have a pretty unique background too. Why don't you tell us about that? Happy to. So first off, the most important thing is I'm Katie's father, <laughs> um, <laughs> along with two other kids uh, that we have too, Daniel and Megan. Um, uh, and uh, I, um, I, I got my start uh, at University of Miami. I, I grew up in Miami, but uh, I went to undergraduate there and got uh, also had a dual major like Katie did. And mine was in uh, physics and marine science. Uh, and then I went on to pursue a PhD in physical oceanography at the University of Rhode Island uh, and was doing, uh, you know, what we what we call blue water oceanography, uh, open ocean uh, type work. Uh, but then when um, uh, when Katie and her siblings started showing up, my wife was asking, hey, are you going to keep going out on those ships for 60, 90 days at a time? Um, and I said, no, of course not. So I started to do some uh, Nearshore work. So I started working at the National Data Buoy Center, which is in uh, part of NOAA in, in Mississippi. Worked there for about two years, and then uh, returned to the University of Miami uh, as a postdoc and eventually a professor, uh, where um, where I pursued uh, satellite oceanography. Uh, so again, that was something I could actually do from my desk. Didn't have to go out to see that often. Uh, the the satellites collect the data and the observations that Jenny was talking about, and you know, send them to the computers. Uh, there and we can do our climate work. And so that's where I really started to get into climate science uh, and the construction of well-calibrated uh, observations from space. Uh, that's one of the tricks to understanding uh, uh, climate change on Earth is to uh, tease out all the instrument artifacts from your measurements. So you can be sure when you're looking at the, at the data that you're seeing what's really happening on Earth and not what's happening to your observing system. Um, and so uh, I, I worked there for about, know, about 10 years or so, and then um, actually started working for the National Park Service on Everglades Restoration, which is very much an applied science project. Uh, but then uh, returned to NOAA back uh, up in Asheville, it was what then called the National Climatic Data Center, which is now called the National Centers for Environmental Information, uh, to expound on that work on the climate data records uh, from satellite. So to try to assemble what, what I've been doing at the University of Miami under contract to NASA to do that for NOAA operationally, of, of have many of these uh, global long-term records of, of Earth observations that scientists could use for driving climate models and, and, and taking other um, assessments of Earth's changing climate. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I worked at the, what is essentially NOAA's archive uh, for, again, about, um, about 12 years near the end of my time with NOAA for the last three or four years, I was the chief data officer of the entire organization. That was a very rewarding experience uh, to work across NOAA, including fisheries and, and weather service and other parts of NOAA. They're doing great climate work. Um, and uh, in my last year with federal government, uh, I actually the uh, uh, 
reestablish the role of the chief data officer at, at, at the department level, the Department of Commerce. So again, and working a lot with the White House to get all that uh, squared away. That was, again, very rewarding. But about a year ago, uh, I, I left to uh, join this uh, nonprofit, Neil, that you mentioned during the introduction, the First Street Foundation, which has a very unique mission of communicating, quantifying, communicating climate change at the individual level. So I feel like, uh, yeah, my my um, my uh, career has kind of come back to, to to its roots of why you know like why I got my interest in environmental science in the first place. Full circle, I love it. That's great. So I'm I'm glad you started in the ocean because I do have an ocean question for you. You know, you've you've spent a lot of time on ships and things like that, like you said before, and so you spent a long period of your career working with ocean sensing equipment. And, you know, the, the question that I have about that is, you know, can you perhaps relate your experience working with those sensors and what kind of barriers you encountered? And, you know, the, the, the broader question is, do we have enough ocean data? Yeah, we, uh, I think the feeling in the ocean community is we can never have enough ocean data. Um, and and there, there is some truth to that uh, because the ocean is difficult to sample, unlike the atmosphere, which we can use things like radar to, to sample the atmosphere. Uh, the ocean is, is mainly, you know, uh, opaque to electromagnetic radiation, so we can't use a lot of those same techniques we use in the atmosphere or from satellite to look under the ocean. It's very, very difficult. Right. So, um, so yeah, so the more measurements we can accumulate, uh, the, the better off we are to understand what's actually happening in the ocean. And how does that apply to the nearshore environment, the coral reef environment? Is there a lack of, of high-resolution data in that particular area that services such a high uh, biomass? Yeah, we, 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 we don't have a lot of um, high-resolution measurements on, on our coral reefs and along our shorelines. Uh, with the advent of, of LIDAR technologies, now we have more information about uh, the, the bathymetry in these areas, which is a, which is a great help, but in terms of uh, temperature, nutrients, all these other important things that are putting stresses on coral reefs that are big determinants and in, in how um, how the local ecosystems are working. A lot of times, we have to work with proxy data. So, um, for example, ocean color—that's something else we can measure from satellite, which gives us an indication of, of how much phytoplankton is growing in the water, how much um, dissolved organic material might be in the water. But again, these are sometimes very difficult measurements to make at the kind of resolution uh, that we need for some of these coastal processes. Right. You said resolution. Can you define for us what you mean by resolution? Yes. Uh, so if you're dealing with a, a coral reef, you're probably looking at like the, um, the, the length scale that matters. Sort of like if you, if you imagine like a picture of a coral reef, it'd be like the pixel size of a coral reef. Um, in that in that image so what, what's important in a coral reef you're, you're probably talking about you know meter resolution meter by meter or five meter by five meter block over the over coral reef where that's how the how the how the how the reef is varying and how how the life is, is changing across the, the reef as you kind of take a transect across it uh, from satellite trying to get measurements of, of things like ocean color at this kind of measurements or this kind of horizontal resolution is very very difficult um, uh, a lot of the new commercial satellite imagery that's, that's available for um, uh, for commercial purchase, um, uh, the kind of stuff that you see on on, on Google Maps and such, um, those don't necessarily have the, the right uh, bands, the right optical bands in them to do the kind of measurements that uh, scientists want to make over the coral reef. So the typical visible wavelength RGB kind of uh, uh, values that you see um, only tell you so much. 
So um, there's, a, there's a challenge both in the horizontal resolution and the spectral resolution uh, from the measurements to try to, if we're using satellites or drones or, or aircraft to sample our coral reefs, uh, it, it becomes quite a challenge. Described barefoot luxury, the casually sophisticated Southern Cross Club is Little Cayman's original resort. This hidden gem is as unique and vibrant as the island it inhabits. A true island treasure, it is the perfect place to dive, fish and relax. Its 14 beachfront bungalows are situated on 900 feet of white sand, only minutes from the world-class diving found only in Little Cayman. Visit www.southerncrossclub.com to book your escape to tranquility. Hey, this is Megan Haney-Greer, freediver, ocean explorer, and marine educator. Also, the imperfect conservationist. You're listening to the Two Degrees C Climate Chat Podcast. So here we have this vast ocean. We don't have enough data. We have various technology and modes, like satellites that you have a lot of experience with. And we have the variables to under, you know, that we're looking for to better understand our oceans, um, sea surface temperature being one of them, color, salinity, um, light, uh, pH, uh, pressure, you know, all at a specific depth in the ocean. So as you think about sea surface temperature as an example, um, this SST data is pretty accurate over ocean data, over the open ocean data. Um, but what happens as we get near shore? Um, what do you, you know, what are the issues and what do you think could be improved? And SST, just to be clear for this, is a sea surface temperature, right? Yep, sea surface, sea surface temperature. Yeah, so one, one of the curious things, like, so, like you said, Jenny, on the open ocean, uh, away from land, our, our measurements of sea surface temperature are actually pretty good. Um, uh, a lot of work, decades of work has gone into that. As you get closer to the shore, um, you start to get some interference from um, uh, from land effects that are also making their way. If we're doing it from satellite, many, you know, uh, making their way up to to, to the satellite uh, for its measurements. But curiously, the, the 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 changes in temperature are much greater in the near shore. So we can live with that um, that reduced uh, resolution uh, in some way that reduced accuracy because the the uh, processes that are at work near shore can vary by, by, by several degrees, can make a huge difference in how the near shore physics is working or how the near shore ecology is responding. Out in the open ocean, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a different challenge. So that's, that's a good thing um, uh, that we can make do with uh, lower resolution uh, or lo lower accuracy measurements. We don't have to go through quite as great pains. However, uh, Back to the point about the horizontal resolution, the, the, the processes that work there in the near shore are much smaller resolution. Um, so out in the open ocean, we can get away with, you know, a, a kilometer uh, resolution or, or more, and we could still understand what's going on out there. Near shore, we definitely need things down like, you know, at the 100 meter resolution, 10 meter resolution, it would be far superior to actually understand what's going on at the shoreline. So that's, it, it's a trade off on the challenges there. So if such a technology were to exist for nearshore observations with the level of specificity and resolution that would be beneficial for um, not only ecosystem, land management, real estate, offshore wind, renewable energy, um, coral reefs, um, do you, would you see 
interest in that type of observation? And do you see there, I'm, uh, I'm coming to you next, Katie, because that was a technology question. Yeah, so um, yeah, to, to break it to break the resolution question into maybe two different pieces. One is like sort of from the from the science side, what is the scale that we need to measure the uh, measure the Earth, measure the oceans, to be able to understand the processes that work there, so we can understand how climate is changing, we understand how the ecosystems are changing, how they're working. That's one question. The other question is um, it gets a little bit more personal because it's about how the how the people are interacting with the data, with the environment, right? So um, that, that's, a, that's a whole different scale. So for the, for the physics, you know, getting, getting away with the 10 meter resolution to understand the physical process is great. And scientists are used to dealing with those kinds of those limitations. But at what point does the data become at such a level, such a, not, not just resolution, but at, a, at a, a meaningful level that the individual can grasp it and understand it and it's meaningful to them in their life. And, um, yeah, that, that's, one, that's one of the great challenges facing us in climate, climate science. We can describe with, with how climate is changing around the world, but what it means to that individual standing on the beach or swimming in the ocean is something entirely different. So Katie, you grew up understanding um, environmental issues, opportunities, technology, satellites, probably since you were just crawling. Um, and you studied creative technologies um, as part of your academic training. So what do you hope to achieve with uh, this training? Um, and what would you like to see happen as it relates to environmental issues? Yeah, so um, I have always had um, an interest in problem solving and obviously climate change is a huge issue. Um, growing up with my father being very um, involved in that area, I, uh, I saw a lot of the issues from a young age. Um, so studying technology was kind of my way of um, kind of bringing that knowledge from my father um, to kind of different aspects of uh, career areas. So um, one, of, one of my goals is um, because of my education in technology, I'm looking to build and solve problems. Um, and they might not necessarily, the problems might not necessarily be climate change um, itself. Um, but while I'm solving those problems, keeping climate change in mind and keeping um, those issues in mind. So if I'm making a product, I'm building it with um, you know, sustainable um, resources and keeping all of those things in mind um, as I'm going through with my, my career. Yeah, so it might help you design a technology solution appropriately as that technology interacts with the humans. Yeah, no, I think um, having, uh, having the older generation taking this data and making it, um, uh, having a large amount of data um, and making it accessible for uh, generations like mine to use that data uh, with the tools that we have, with the technology that we have um, and making sense of it and really doing something about it. Um, I think people like my father who um, didn't really get a, a giant chance to kind of make a change because 
it kind of happened as they were growing up. So now my dad is um, taking the data and trying to make it accessible for everybody to see um, so that we can do something about it um, and have the information in the back in the backing for it. You said data and you said technology that is available, but I would say technology that you will create based on that data. So Katie, let's talk a little bit about addressing the intergenerational inequity and the role of you know, using new technologies in and applying these to you know, climate action. So where do you feel the importance lies in, in being able to, you know, for the next generation to be able to push that, uh, that message forward and to drive that ball forward? Yeah, I think um, there is a lot of opportunity for new techno technologies, especially um, like the older generations taking all of this data. Um, uh, there's an opportunity to take more data, uh, but also create technologies to uh, use the data to solve problems. Um, so I think, um, I think it's important for our generation to, um, to really push forward with the knowledge that we know and um, the information that we've learned um, and try to really be better and to improve. And, and that would mean, you know, designing and developing new tools as well, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, new tools to take data, uh, new tools to, um, to improve um, the way that we use energy. Uh, like that. With so many wonderful destinations around the world to choose from, a little help can go a long way. Quest Dog Adventures is your premium adventure travel company, offering a wide and diverse selection of destinations to choose from. With dive adventures from the Pacific to the Caribbean, and adventure travel from Costa Rica to Africa, Quest Dive Adventures offers packages including flights and accommodations, activities, transfers, diving and more. Everything to enjoy your perfect vacation. What's your request? So pivoting back to you for a second, Ed, um, there are many ways that we can expand upon the information source about our earth system that would be beneficial for this next generation. Um, and we think about, you know, how do we make that happen? How do we expand and elaborate on the data sources? What role, if any, do you see being beneficial from citizen science? You know, how does First Street consider citizen science information? And uh, could that be looked at further for data collection? Yeah, so in terms of data collection, I, I think it's um, an interesting challenge to make uh, climate science be very personal. Um, and so for the, for Katie's generation, for example, uh, um, as she was just describing, you know, bringing technologies in to, to help measure uh, climate change, this is an active way of, of getting that generation um, involved in climate science, right, at, at, a, at a very uh, personal level. I, I think um, that's one thing that with our previous generation, so, you know, okay, I'm old, I'm old, I'm great, you know, <laughs> in, in, in our generation, uh, 
climate has always been treated as a very impersonal subject. It's like climate is something that's happening somewhere else to somebody else. It's not happening to me. I look up my window, things look just fine. I don't really notice the change around me. Um, and, and, and in fact, so what, what First Street is doing now is actually kind of targeting the previous generation, right? With that kind of mindset of making climate meaningful to people. And, and First Street, our, our, our strategy is to start with um, uh, different climate perils. We took on flood first because it's the most prevalent and expensive uh, you know, climate risk in the United States. Uh, but to boil all this climate science down into, into a property by property assessment of what's gonna happen to your home. You know, what, what is the risk of your home? We put a number between one and 10 on your home. And then on, now what we've also recently done is, is released a, an estimate of what it's gonna cost you. What is climate going to cost you in terms of flood damage to your home over the next 30 years, right? So we're trying to make that a very impersonal subject, climate, very, very meaningful to a person because it's like, if you, if you, if you let them know what's gonna to happen to their pocketbook, let them know get to their home, it can make a difference. And, and if you've talked with people who have gone through flooding events before, they understand in a very personal, visceral level uh, what, what flood can do to their homes and their families and their livelihoods. And they take it very seriously. If you've never had a flooding event in your home, it's not personal yet, right? And, so, and it's really hard to tell somebody who's lived in a, in a home for 20 years that their flood risk is going up. And they say, well, it's never flooded here before. I'm like, well, welcome to climate change. This is, this is what is very difficult to communicate, right? And so for the, for the, the older generations, this is the strategy that First Street is, is taking because we're still having to make people aware that climate risk is real. In Katie's generation, Katie's been growing up with a different reality of climate change has always been on the table, but they haven't been involved, right? Yeah. They haven't been personally involved. This is something that the scientists in Washington or somebody or some university, they're figuring this out. It's like, no, wait, wait, this has got to be full court press. Everybody across our society has to participate in some way and become part of the solution. And so this, you know, the citizen science approach of involving uh, individuals in, 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 in taking uh, measurements that can be used for climate change of, of, of just going out and, and sampling the earth and becoming part of that awareness of that, that the earth is changing um, is, is very important for moving that climate needle for actually inspiring action. Because if people don't care, they're not going to take action. Great. I so appreciate your comments there. So as you think about flood as a peril, there's other perils that you know, any individual who has experienced that peril, whether it's wildfire or uh, a, a catastrophe or the inability to pay insurance and having to withstand that particular um, disaster, it's very painful. Um, and earthquake, tsunami, um, they're all uh, very, very difficult to deal with when they affect you and your family. Um, so, citizen science can help move the needle and would localized data collection and the availability of localized data help improve our understanding and products and information? Yeah, I believe so. And, and one of the you know, interesting results of some of our economics uh, research has been that the, you know, like you mentioned, some of these um, high severity but low frequency events, right? like a tsunami or, uh, you know, a cat five hurricane or something like this. Um, people generally don't uh, do a very good job of wrapping their heads around um, that kind of probabilistic event. Uh, this is uh, just the nature of, of, of people. 
Um, but um, when it comes to the lower severity, higher frequency events, so imagine king tides, right? So like a lot of places like Miami Beach or, or Charleston or Norfolk, right, are, are being heavily impacted at this point right now. The economic impact in those communities is enormous right now and it's growing. And uh, it's literally happening, happening like every other day. And these are things that people can get out uh, in, into their environment and, 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 and sample this information. They can, they, can, they can collect data, they can take pictures, they can, and, and, and some of these local communities have actually started this kind of grassroots kind of thing to understand what the effects are on their communities. And it's becoming meaningful. It's becoming meaningful because it's being reflected in how these communities are behaving. It's being reflected in things like home prices. It's being reflected in where people are moving and how they're adapting to this kind of change. And um, yeah, so I think every time you can bring things down to that, that, that root level, and because the, the high frequency events seem to be more impactful at this point, this is a, this is a good thing. Because you can't go out and sample a Cat 5 hurricane every day, you know, <laughs> nor do you want to. <laughs> the kids out there, Katie, <laughs> yes, don't walk out in a Cat 5 hurricane. That's not what you want to do. But you yeah, know, to go out and, technology to do that. So yeah, <laughs> but, but but yeah, exactly. There's a great technology, great drone technology and stuff that can do that, both in the ocean and in the atmosphere. Exactly. Um, you can sit in sit in the in the airplane and drop the drop the things out into the middle of the storm, and you can be safe while you do it. Yes, and that's a fun ride. But um, uh, you know, to to have citizen scientists go out there and and get involved in those higher frequency, low intensity events like king tides, uh, have them go out there and you, it, it, again, it can become very visceral when you can see your, the street uh, in your community totally flooded. When you see that car, cars can't go down there, you see fish swimming in, in the streets and stuff like this, right? This, is, this leaves a lasting impression on people like, oh my gosh, something is changing. This is not normal to have fish in my street. Okay, very good. Step one, yeah. awareness is raised. Now step two is inspire them to take action. Uh, and there's a there's a whole multitude of actions that, that can that can take place, but the the first thing is yeah, like the citizen science is about it, getting involved. And that's a good opportunity, Katie, to ask you, you know, how you feel that you know these kind of technologies can be applied uh, in a meaningful way to try and uh, or do you think it will alleviate any of the uh, the next generation's climate anxiety? So, I think that um, creative technologies can be used. To, uh, to try to do something about the problem to alleviate some anxiety. I know that I always grew up with the fish in the streets. Um, that anxiety, uh, that climate anxiety has always been there. Um, and trying to kind of combat that um, for a while, I kind of tried to push it out of my brain like most people do, like the last generation did. And I realized you can't do that. So um, I want my goal is to use technology to try to do something about this so that my kids don't run into this, um, this climate anxiety, um, because that's one of the biggest issues. That's why a lot of people like to kind of shove it away is because they're anxious about it and they, not one person can do something about it. Um, so creating a technology that gives people hope, um, something that they can do about it, um, something that they know uh, they have uh, like an effect and what they can do to help um, is, is kind of the goal. Yeah, I think that is a good point. Hope, it does create hope. All right, um, last question as part of our closing and back, we'll hand it back to you, Neil, in just a second. Mm -hmm. Last question, what would you like to see happen 
in terms of the single most important investment made by any enterprise, whether it's the government, private sector, private equity, uh, an individual, a philanthropist, what is the one thing that you think current leaders um, can provide resources for? What one investment needs to be made today? Um, I think for current leaders, um, I honestly think they just need to listen. Um, they need to listen to us. They need to be ready that we all care about it. Our generation cares about it. Um, so as they're hiring new people like me who are just graduated, they need to be prepared that climate change is something that matters to us. And if your company is not taking that into account or if that's not something that's on your mind, then they're not gonna wanna work for you. They want to work for people who care about this. Um, so leaders just need to listen and be ready. Ed? Well, I think yeah. you guys have. Well, what, Ed? Go ahead. Yeah, so I think the, the greatest investment that can be made right now would be to build bridges between uh, governments and, and private industry, uh, because this is a, to, to solve this climate uh, issue that, that's facing us all, this is not something that the government alone is going to be able to do. This is not something that academia, by publishing papers, is going to just be, oh, obviously, this is the way forward. And this is not something that private industry left alone is going to solve either. It's, it's definitely going to have to, uh, you have to wire these, these groups together in, in, a, in, a, in a meaningful way to take action, right? So as Katie was saying, she, she grew up, you know, with, with fish industry. She, Katie grew up in, in South Florida, right, in, in Miami, which is like ground zero for, for climate change, right? The people in South Florida don't uh, often appreciate that they are already, in a technology sense, they're already living in a heavily adapted area. So the engineers, uh, you know, back in the 1950s started building uh, an extensive flood control um, uh, network throughout South Florida that allows the, the folks to live there and the homes to be dry there uh, under most conditions. Uh, that system, uh, as, as the, the governments of Miami-Dade and Broward and others down there, they, as they know, it's reaching a tipping point where those systems were not engineered for the climate of 2030. They were engineered for the climate of 1950. And, uh, but the people in those areas are not aware of those technologies that are surrounding them or how dependent they are on them, right? So they are in the middle of learning <laughs> what, uh, what mm. those challenges are, what those limits are. But you know, governments getting, um, uh, getting involved uh, along with uh, private industry to help come up with some of these solutions is gonna be very important because these, these solutions need to be equitable um, you know, the, the wealthier communities have the resources to deal with these kinds of things. The, the poorer communities or more vulnerable communities don't, uh, but we definitely need to adapt as a society together, sort of in lockstep. And as Katie was saying, with private industry, you know, with, with, um, with the younger workforce entering into, the, into private industry, they want to be engaged in, in such a way that's helping to contribute to the solution, not to make the problem any worse, right? And so it, it definitely... Um, you know, uh, like I said, said before, full court press. This is not something that we can that we that we can think that just one segment of our society is just going to just fix it for us all. Now that everybody has to be involved every day uh, through our actions to get to where we need to be. Yeah. 
I think uh, Ed, that just sums it up so so well. Thank you so much for for coming in and sharing your thoughts, both you and Katie. And um, Katie, we wish you all of the best in your success and your brand new career. Um, and to Ed, all of the best in in, in your new foundation, the First Street Foundation. Um, and anybody would like to know more about that, it's uh, uh, first uh, firststreet.org. And uh, also to check out your tool, which is uh, floodfactor.com. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Floodfactor.com. Well, thank you both for coming in and uh, joining us for the Two Degree C Climate Chat. We hope to have you back again soon and maybe an update about your new career, Katie. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you. Okay, guys. Um, Let's pivot out to the news, and uh, we do like to discuss the news here, and um, we have a, a newsletter that goes out once a week called the Two Degrees C Climate Check, um, where we pull, you know, two or three climate um, news in, in stories or interesting news stories uh, that, are, that are current, and add that to a scientific report that we found, um, and you can sign up for that at twodegreesc.org, um, just once a week, just the facts, and uh, joining me to di discuss uh, today's news, Dr. Carson Shine. so thanks, Carson, for coming back. Thanks, Neil. Um, one of the news stories that um, was circulating right now and sticking with the, um, the ocean theme says how a digital ocean can unlock climate fighting potential. And that's an interesting topic for us. And, you know, what can you tell us is going on and where do you think the, the gaps in the ocean data are? Yeah, this is, this is a really timely article, uh, especially for two degrees C. Um, because it really, it really highlights and uh, underscores our message that uh, there really is not enough uh, data on the ocean. I mean, 90% of it is still unexplored. Um, and the few data points that we do have in the ocean, they come from a handful of buoys, um, uh, ships uh, that are traversing uh, regular trade routes. Um, but the rest of the ocean is largely still um, devoid of any observations. And really this article uh, and, and our message is that uh, we can close these data gaps. Technology has been uh, evolving and, and advancing in ways that are uh, making these, these ocean sensors far more uh, economical and robust. And uh, a lot of folks, this, is, uh, this article was talking a little bit about uh, NATO having interest in deploying you know, millions of these small buoys that uh, that would drift around the ocean, uh, collecting observations. But uh, again, a big problem is that a lot of the really important uh, parts of the ocean are really inshore, where these drifters generally do not go because they drift in currents that keep them offshore. So there's really a huge data gap in the nearshore environment that, uh, of course, uh, two degrees C is trying to close. But at the same time, across the open oceans, um, there is a vast need for greater observations. Uh, there's one estimate by the uh, World Resources Institute that suggests that the oceans, uh, understanding the oceans better could uh, uh, help uh, contribute, help cut um, global emissions uh, by about 21%. Um, that's through more sustainable fishing and, you know, uh, shipping, transportation, but we have to understand these, uh, these issues, both the atmosphere over the ocean as well as the, the ocean water itself. Uh, and that really just requires a vast 
increase in the amount of observation that's out there. Right. So, I mean, you, you briefly mentioned where the observations are taking place, but um, let's understand that network a little better. You know, how is that network of observations put together? Um, I mean, there, there's certainly uh, information coming from, from satellites, right? Sure. Satellites are the, the, the large eye in the sky that is looking down on, on the planet. And, you know, the ocean makes up 72% or so of the, of the ocean, of the, of the Earth's surface. So these satellites are invaluable in, in capturing information about these oceans, um, mm -hmm. especially in places where we can't reliably or, or inexpensively get to. Um, but they have a big limitation in that they can't see into the ocean. They really can only see the ocean surface and usually only when the skies are clear above that ocean. Um, so they're looking at sea surface temperature, for example. Um, and uh, that's, that's really a challenge if you're trying to understand what's going on within the ocean's water column um, from the surface down to the, uh, down to the seabed. So, uh, the rest of the network is really cobbled together by uh, moored buoys that have been put in place in various parts of the ocean, for example, um, across the equatorial Pacific to monitor El Nino conditions, for example. Um, there are a few uh, buoys along coastlines, uh, generally in areas where there is a need to understand uh, conditions for shipping. Um, and then there's a, an array of drifting buoys uh, that are released from sh from research ships uh, throughout the throughout the ocean, and they do exactly what you would imagine they do. They drift in the currents. Uh, some of them will uh, descend to several hundred meters depth, collect observations, come back up to the surface, and send their data off. Um, and in addition, there are uh, numerous uh, data collection opportunities with research projects uh, throughout the oceans. But again, these are generally very small scale, uh, very discrete observation uh, campaigns. And many times those data don't become available to the public for uh, months or even years after they're collected um, as, the, as the data are analyzed and, and the research is being conducted. So really there's, there's just this, uh, this ad hoc network of, of observations that are more or less observations of opportunity. And if we if we think about specifically the climate, because you know how how we know that the ocean is important to climate, that's already been established in, in previous episodes. But how do we take that information and those those data gaps that are being uh, filled by these different sources or different streams of information? How is that advancing the understanding of climate? I mean, every bit of, of data that is captured uh, helps in our understanding because it, these data then can go into uh, the ocean and atmosphere, the coupled models that, that, are, that are trying to uh, reconstruct the climate and project it forward. So having those additional data will help to increase the resolution and accuracy uh, enhancing these models. Um, but again, in places where we have no data, we really are not increasing the, uh, the, the level of certainty of these, of these models at all. Um, we can only guess that it may be uh, improving. 
And you mentioned the initial environment um, being the area that you would focus on. And why is that so important? For a number of reasons. That's, it's largely the, uh, the breeding ground for the majority of the ocean's uh, species, uh, including the, the commercial fishing uh, species. And these ecosystems that are in the nearshore environment, uh, you know, whether they're natural or artificial like uh, shipwrecks and such, they do provide shoreline protect, protection um, from storm surges and things like that. Um, so they are, they're really important to a lot of coastal communities. Uh, and if they are damaged, then those communities lose that resource. So the natural infrastructure in the near shore environment is, is absolutely essential to, uh, to the roughly half of the world's population that lives on or near the coast. Right. Well, I do, I do thank you for uh, explaining that out to us today, and uh, we will we'll, we'll definitely be watching this a bit closer. Thanks, Karsten. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Two Degrees C Climate Chat. If you have a question you would like answered, a topic for discussion, or would like to be a guest on the show, please leave a comment below. We'd love to hear your stories and climate journeys, and if you like what you've heard today, please like, subscribe, and comment wherever you hear your podcasts. Next week, we'll be joined by Dr. Jennifer Jackson of the Hakai Institute in Canada to discuss her work as a physical oceanographer in British Columbia. Her work focuses on how the ocean is changing and the ripple effects manifesting through this realm. So be sure to check back in then or find out more about the stories you just heard by visiting our blog at 2degreesc.org and connect to others like you via our social media. Thank you to our sponsors and partners without which this podcast is not possible, with special thanks to Seren Media for producing today's episode. To find out more about our partners, please visit our website. And if you'd like to become a sponsor or partner, please email us at podcast at 2degreesc.org.